Today on Sagittarian Matters, trans history, dolphin communication, respectability politics, and more, as Dr. Susan Stryker and Chris Vargas discuss Reed Erickson. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Over the summer, I had the pleasure of interviewing historian and filmmaker Dr. Susan Stryker in San Francisco. I was accompanied to this interview by Chris Vargas, creator of MOTHA, the Museum of Transgender History and Art. At the end of our interview, Chris asked Dr. Stryker if there were any trans people from history that she was particularly interested in. Susan mentioned Reed Erickson, an American philanthropist who, according to Wikipedia and sociology specialist Aaron DeVore, largely informed, quote, almost every aspect of work being done in the 1960s and 70s in the field of transsexualism in the United States and, to a lesser degree, in other countries. I don't want to give too much away, but Reed Erickson's work and his story felt like they deserved their own episode. In fact, I wish we were documenting his life as an entire series. In the meantime, you can find a link to Chris's video about Reed Erickson on our Instagram page, Sagittarian Matters. Now, without further ado, I present our talk with Susan Stryker with supplementary commentary from Chris Vargas. Enjoy. Dr. Susan Stryker is the Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona. She is a filmmaker behind the Emmy award-winning documentary film Screaming Queens. She is part of a bathroom redesign project called Stalled, and she just came out with a new edition of her book, Transgender History, with Sale Press. Chris Vargas is an artist, filmmaker, professor, and the founder of MAFA, the Museum of Transgender History and Art. You can find his installation, Consciousness Raising, the Stonewall Rememorialization Project, at the new museum through January, or find him online at ChrisVargas.com. You know, somebody I'm currently fascinated with is this guy Reed Erickson, who was, um, I think of him as like the transsexual Howard Hughes. You know, he was fabulously wealthy and, um, you know, could be considered kind of eccentric. And, you know, you know, later in his life, he you know, really kind of withdrew and had a lot of drug problems. And, you know, it's like I did not have a happy ending in life, um, which was tragic because he was this really amazing person who kind of like funded everything. You know, he was the guy who, you know, like funded Harry Benjamin to write the, you know, um, the transsexual phenomenon. And like he helped set up networks of medical service providers and establish research programs and, um, you know, do published a lot of self-help literature for trans people and, you know, on and on and on. He was like super influential. Um, and you know, he had this broader sense of transness, like, like, even though he was, even though he funded a lot of the medical people, it's like in his own life, it's like he was like totally into new age spirituality and, you know, quote unquote, Eastern mysticism and, um, you know, interspecies communication. Like he funded research on like people trying to talk to dolphins and he, 
experimented with psychedelic drugs, and you know he was a he had a leopard named Henry. He had a pet leopard <laughs> named Henry. He found he was the early bankroller of the One Institute, One right, Institute. which is the homophile organization, right. one of the earlier first, yeah, and yeah. then yeah. so um, the video, which you'll see. He was going to, he gifted, or he bought a mansion that he was going to gift to one. Bank estates. Mm-hmm. And yes. was embroiled for, what, like 10 years in, like, legal, like, in, in some sort of legal battle with them. Yeah. Um, and how that estate was going to be the center of, like, trans activism and animal communication and psychedelic drug use. Yeah. And- Sign me up. <laughs> he, he had this sense in myself, like, there was the Millbank estate. He owned a couple of houses in Ojai, California. He also owned this place down in Mazatlan, Mexico, called the Lovejoy Palace. Someone contacted me from that um, place in Mexico because they're trying to pull out that history. and, and I try- You like, do. I yeah. do. And it's like, I actually, you know, was looking at um, Google Maps satellite view and like that property is still pretty intact. You know, it was this gated compound this big you know this big mansion that Erickson designed you know himself and but both at, at Mazatlan and in Ojai and what he was imagining for the Millbank estate was that he called these places ashrams you know it's just like he has this this sense of like it's like you know we're going to bring these like spiritual masters here and these very evolved people and you know cross you know cross specialty kinds of communication getting the doctors talking to the people who are doing astral projection and you know i mean just he he had this sense of like wanting to curate and cultivate a really um kind of multi-dimensional um you know c- conversation where it's like his vision of transness wasn't just like, oh, you have this mental illness or physical condition and doctors will fix it. But it's like he saw it as part of this broader like spiritual practice where it's about like actualizing human potential, mm-hmm. you know. Um, um, so, yeah, he really, really fascinating guy. What was it? Uh, what was it like for trans people before he came around? Well, I mean, you know, the 60s were an interesting time because that's when the first like gender reassignment clinics emerged in the U.S. Some, you know, happened in Europe um, or, yeah, they had those kinds of medical services in Europe, but not in the U.S. So like he's funding early stuff at like John Hopkins Hospital and Stanford um, and like really important places that are still, you know, open today. And he was but, just born uh, with tons of family money. Yeah, he had a ton of family money. He was born rich and was actually a good business person. So he inherited the family business and then like continued to make a lot of money with metal. <laughs> he like made stadium bleachers. But then also like, you know, coming across some stories like he would buy like foreign currency and then hold on to it and then like exchange it at a higher rate that he bought, you know, like just really savvy, rich person kind of business money moves, you know? Oh, he was making money moves. (laughs) I've heard about those. Um, Yeah. Can you talk more about some of the things that he funded or did? I know that we, I didn't know that he funded clinics. We were also talking about pamphlets. Yeah. He did pamphlets that were helpful um, for like, um, mental health providers and, and like physical health providers and then like the law enforcement. So really like easy to digest pamphlets um, 
for people to understand this experience and to like treat people with, you know, respect in these like medical um, arenas. Like one would be like medical management of the transsexual. And then another was information on transsexual um, transsexualism for law enforcement um, or counseling the transsexual, just information that was not like widely available at that time. Wow. So how did he change the course of history for trans people today? He set in motion all of these um, physical and mental health kind of ways of working. He, um, I think, funded Harry, like Harry Benjamin, which who was who a key figure in um, providing um, medical care for trans people. And in fact, like when I was coming up, the Harry Benjamin like um, outline for transition was still in effect, you know, like getting a, a note from your mental health provider and giving that to your, your, your general practitioner, or your surgeon or whatever to like treat you. So like those, um, yeah, he funded people like that. And so, yeah, the stuff that he funded still kind of, you know, has definitely has an impact on how medical care for trans people um, exists today. Wow. But we don't just have an interest in him because he was just a really great guy. <laughs> Why are you in particular interested in Reed Erickson? I'm interested in him because he's a weirdo. Like he's a really complicated person. He's not just this selfless um, philanthropist. He was like interested in all these esoteric kind of things. Um, like, well, at the time, um, I think he was credited for um, the first English language book on acupuncture in the West. Um, and then, but also like dream research and dolphin communication and, and psychedelic mushroom research. And also like, he was a weird, you know, personality. I think he was a little difficult because he um, had some drug abuse issues and mental health issues too. So um, he like set all these wonderful things in motion, including like care for trans people mentally and physically, but also like all this kind of esoteric witchy stuff that I'm interested in as well. And he's not like an easy role model, right? Cause he's complicated. He's, he's not, um, he's not perfect. You're someone I know who I think you you find great value in stories of role models that are not perfect. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to um, set these high standards for people we look up to, you know? Yeah. I think they are people just like you, you and me and complicated and good some days, bad the others. Yeah. So let's let's get into a little bit of his weirdness. So he had a pet that was a pet leopard. Am I getting this right? Leopard. A pet leopard named Henry. There's mm-hmm. there's one thing about this man. Um, <laughs> he had a leopard named Henry. He was interested in dolphin communication, as you said. And then what was like the where was he? doing all this from like what where was his headquarters where he you know could be like write this pamphlet get in this tank talk to this dolphin (laughs) mostly california of course (laughs) um 
obviously LA, I don't know if he had a home there, but he was definitely working with the one, um, the one, um, organization, but I know he had a home in Ojai. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the end of his life, um, towards the end of his life, he had, um, a place, Susan, remember in our conversation described it as an ashram, but it was called the Lovejoy Palace in Mazatlan, um, Mexico. So <laughs> I think he divided his time and then eventually spent most of his time in Mexico because he was um, fleeing the country. So, you know, it's the 60s. He's this mm-hmm. trans guy who's funding all these trans things, but he also is funding homosexual things. Yeah, right. So the one organization, the one institute, as it was called at the time, was an early homophile organization that um, Susan did a really good job just describing as an organization that had like really um, was concerned with like respectability politics for gay people, you know, presenting gay people as proper and law abiding citizens Um, and really like um, um, distancing gay people from any like kind of gender queerness or, you know, and let alone like transsexuality. So um, it's interesting that, that he was funding the one because the one was so like kind of exclusionary. Well, so then how did that interact with him and his, you know, so he's funding all of this, all of these kind of these gay people that are very invested in respectability are receiving money from him and having to deal with him. But then he's getting, I think it seems like he was getting progressively kookier the more he got into drugs and the older he got. And so then was there a moment when those things came, were at odds with each other? Yeah, I think that's what happened with the Milbank estate. Like he was in like a, in a decades long, like legal battle because he was going to gift this mansion to the one Institute for their headquarters. And then eventually was like, no, like this is not, these are not where my politics are. And there, you know, he had a lot of like probably interpersonal um, tension between them, but like political tensions too, because of, I think his, he was getting a lot more, um, kind of weird, you know, and a lot more radical in his like thinking about politics and organizing. So he was going to give this mansion to them, but then eventually didn't. But back to the sort of the Millbank estate, there was this guy, Dor Legg, who was one of the main, um, um, you know, sort of powers that be in this early gay rights organization called um, all the, the Mattachine Society and the One Institute, which in some ways kind of comes out of that. Um, and that, um, he and Reed Erickson had collaborated in like 1964, 65 on publishing a bibliography of all known works on homosexuality. You know, it's like, which was a pretty cool project. It was one of the first things that Erickson did as a, you know, kind of like as a philanthropist was to fund the One Institute. And Dorr wanted him to like, you know, buy a property that could become the center of the, you know, the One Institute. And um, Erickson was, you know, totally down for that. But, you know, they kind of had different visions for it. You know, I mean, Dorr was, I think, kind of interested in a kind of, you know, politics of respectability. And, you know, we're going to show that gay people are okay. You know, and Reed was kind of like, I'm into a new age consciousness here. And, you know, we're transforming consciousness, not like trying to find a way to fit into society. And I think that, you know, there was, 
differences of worldview at work there. But as as Reed's drug problems got worse, mm-hmm. um, he was um, like I said, he experimented with a lot of um, uh, psychotropic drugs, um, uh, and he became addicted to ketamine. Mm-hmm. So he um, he was a kind of a vitamin K person um and um yeah it's like in his later years he was really you know debilitated by all of that so like as his drug problems become more and more disabling and he kind of becomes more erratic door leg was just sort of pushing and pushing and pushing him on this you know the Millbank estate to turn it over you know uh and Erickson was wanting to like hold on to it himself and you know it just got really nasty there was actually um you know sort of like dirty laundry that um Erickson was you know was a trans guy who was like very active in you know trans you know in in kind of establishing trans medicine but in his social life at this time, he's like he wasn't sort of publicly out as trans. I mean, Dorr knew that he was trans and that um, Dorr started threatening to out him like he would show up at Erickson's house with reporters from the L.A. Times and say, like, sign the deed or, you know, they're going to, you know, spill the beans and do a big expose on you. That was so scandalous. Uh, it, well, well, it was more than scandalous. I mean, it was abusive and transphobic. And it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, there's a way that's like, ah, uh, the big LGBTQ rainbow. And then there's ways that like, you know, cis people have like shit on trans people since, you know, the day day one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what Dorr ultimately did is that he, um, you know, he felt that he had been promised this property and that everything was sort of in process. And then it was because, you know, Reed was, you know, becoming more debilitated with his drug use that um, Dorr sued and that he sued um, and we filed the lawsuit. It was uh, under Reed Erickson's birth assigned name. You know, and it's like it outed him in court, you know, and that he had to do it's like and when And what it, year was this? Uh this is in seventy uh, I'm gonna forget, seventy seven, seventy eight, somewhere around there. Maybe not that late, maybe a little bit earlier. Mid seventies. I could look it up, but <laughs> civ brain, I can't remember all of the dates. Um but yeah, so like when you know, it's like it's unclear why the police kind of started coming around Erickson's place. I mean, he was like a rich guy who was a cokehead and a, you know, ketamine addict. But, you know, that probably describes half the population of Ventura County, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like why are the police suddenly interested in Reed Erickson and showing up at his house? And, you know, it's like I think there were people who wanted to get at his money and properties and who were, you know, sicking the police on him. And he was, you know, when he was arrested, it's like he was put in women's jails. It's like, this is like a guy who's in his fifties who like had transitioned, you know, like 15 or 20 years before it always been, you know, transmasculine, if not transsexual to use one of those other old fashioned words that we get scolded for using now. Um, you know, it's like there was a, a lot of, it's like 
his wealth and um, vision and whiteness did not um, protect him from like the structural injustices that trans people have to face regardless of who they were. He could be this fabulously wealthy guy and like somebody who like wants something that he has uses his transness against him. Like that is the vulnerable thing to do. It's like, and he, you know, he, um, yeah, he, he, he actually wound up fleeing the country. Um, you know, it helps if, you know, you're running from drug charges, if you have your own private jet and somebody can just fly you to another country where the, you can, somebody can try to extradite you. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, it's like Reed suffered a lot because of, you know, I'll just say like because of what Dor Leg did to him. His association with the One Archives and the One Institute, that relationship is really downplayed. Like if you go to the One Archives to this day and you look at the donor wall, they have like plaques with people who've given money to help like make this place happen. Reed Erickson's name is like nowhere in sight. And he like gave millions, I think, to the One to make it happen. Oh, wow. I know. Did they ever get their hands on the Millbank estate? No, I don't think they did. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think, so looking at some of the the readings, like they they coexisted maybe on the property, but it never was like fully handed over or like in use, like in the way that they had hoped to use it, which was like a center for homophile studies, you know, sort of like a, maybe a precursor to like a queer studies or a queer history kind of academic program, which is like what they had planned to do there. He was a really dashing butch, you know, as a young, as a young person. And he didn't transition until his forties. It's like he was born in 1917. He transitions in 64, 65. So what is that? Um, what? Do the math. Math is hard. So sorry, I can't um, do any. I can't do any math. <laughs> yeah. So he was. He was like in his forties when he yeah. transitioned, and you know, for a number of years, you know, it's like you know, he was, you know, it's like he was this jet setter. I mean, he was like he sharp dressed man, and he, um, you know, you know, ran in these very fast circles and had beautiful wives, and you know, you know, very dashing. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, as he gets a little older and a little more addicted, I mean, his health and looks, everything really kind of crumbled. Um, but, uh, you know, I said it's it's a sad. It's like he's I just think he, it's a tragic story. Yeah. God, I thought that door was trans, too, until until after he called the police. No, I I was like, that's why I was like, oh, scandalous. I was like, brother against brother. No, No. no. Mm -mm. just in my video that nobody's ever seen. Can can listeners watch it? No, I don't put it on the internet. Um, Sometimes I like to keep all the milk, the cow, sell the, I don't know. Um, Greg, my longtime companion, plays door leg. Shut up. He loves to play an evil, an evil gay. Yeah. I, I never had a chance to meet Reed, but I did meet door. And, um, you know, I didn't know a lot of the, you know, the deep dish when I met door. It's like, and, you know, he actually presented, um, you know, 
read in a very favorable light and, you know, talked about how tragic it was, you know, sort of what had happened to him. And it was all like, you know, oh, so sad, you know, sort of what happened with, with Reed and um, painted the daughter, Monica, as kind of like, you know, a, you know, troublemaker and gold digging money grabber person. It's like, and I think that's actually totally not true. Um, you know, like I've read, I've read the material. It's like, I'm totally on her side. Um, and it's just like, really? It's like, Doris, like you did those really like scuzzy things. It's like you did so much else in life that was good. Um, you know, and it's like, that was fucked up. That yeah. was really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But then as a historian, you just, you just have to smile and nod and be like, oh, okay. Um, you know, I feel like I have um, a responsibility at some point. You know, it's like as I do my, you know, granny tranny, you know, storytelling about our ancestors, our transcestors and what they have, you know, experienced. It's kind of like I feel the need to, like, say, you know, like this is, you know, some of the intra lgbtq community dirt that needs to get aired it's not just you know thin thin skinned little snowflakes who are saying like you're not respecting my trans identity use my pronoun you know it's kind of like there's real you know there's been real discrimination and transphobic violence directed against trans people among people you would think would be you know down for the same cause and sadly it is often not the case Today's episode is brought to you by Amy Ranham, Michelle Lemoyne, Shoshana Ruth Wachter, Mary Pinson, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $500, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet, like the insect, leg, like its appendage, at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to seeing your name on the podcast. Sir Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's Ponyo's voice. Well, you, can we talk a little bit more about his eccentricities, um, about the things he was interested in, the things that he published and funded? Mm-hmm. What do you like the best? Well, the dolphin communication stuff is totally interesting, of course. Um, that was done by this researcher, John Lilly. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, now we take for granted that dolphins are super smart and have like all these like language abilities and capacities, but like at the time, nobody knew that. So we can thank Reed Erickson because we now know that, but also, um, yeah, like stuff about, you know, there's a lot of new research. I'm sure that builds on the research that Reed Erickson initially funded, but like new research on psychedelics, you know? Um, but also, did he invent the secret? <laughs> he didn't invent the secret, but I would say that he was definitely of the, of this moment, of this human potential moment in California that, um, you know, that the secret comes out of, which is like that kind of thinking like mind over matter and we can influence our um, external world with our positive internal thoughts. Um, 
yeah, human potential for sure. And, you know, he, not the secret, but if I would say this is maybe a precursor to the secret, which is this really like dense tome called A Course in Miracles. And that is definitely like one of those kind of human potential um, texts that people go to. What would have happened to him if he had been outed at that time by Dorleg as being trans? Well, didn't, um, I think he was out. Because Susan said that that was a tactic that Reed Erickson, or sorry, that, hold on, I'm taking a note of when I'm saying this. Susan said that Dorleg went to his house with all these reporters from the LA Times and was like, sign over the deed or I'm going to tell them all that you're trans. Mm -hmm. Like maybe publicly he was not trans. Right. Right. Professionally and in a lot of ways, probably he wasn't. Um, God, it would have been, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, like he's was really protected his money, Mm -hmm. you know, he's really rich, a lot of resources, but you know, maybe professionally had like the people he was doing business with had no, if they had known the details would have, thought twice about doing business with him. I don't know. And you did a video about him. I did. Yeah. What what happens in your video? I focus on like the kind of the possible future of the blending of like trans activism and all the like esoteric stuff that he was interested in, you know, like what if like the trans movement aligned with like psychedelics and like, communicating with animals like where would we be today (laughs) um i liked that vision of our future rather than which i think is the direction we've gone which is like a more civil rights kind of respectability prop respectability politics kind of um mission (laughs) how do you this is out of left field how do you feel i i'm thinking about that book gentrification of the mind Mm-hmm. How do you do you think that things would be different right now if that generation of gay men had not perished in the AIDS crisis? Like, would we be in a place that was a little more trippy and less respectability? Right. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think like once the AIDS happened, like people really doubled down on like the human, like kind of looking at um, gays as in a kind of humanist way, like they're just like us, they're real, you know, they deserve our respect rather than like pushing against some of the like social, political, like restrictions that oppress us. Right. So, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, our politics and our lives could be more expansive, could have been more expansive if we didn't all of a sudden have to like prove ourselves as not like total, like fuck up deviants. (laughs) Can you talk about humanism for a minute? Well, it's like, I don't know. I think of it as aligned with kind of respectability projects, like looking at trans people as not like the weird freaks that, that we are actually just kidding, you know, like, but, but understanding us as like part of families or like good citizens also, you know, rather than like pointing out some of the oppressive structures that make our lives a little bit hard to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on who you are, where you are in the world. Um, but yeah, so I think that, I think that really like influenced gay politics for, and still does, especially now with our current like hyper conservative 
administration and all the attacks on, on trans people and our existence. You know, like we have once again have to prove ourselves as like worthy of life and worthy of like respect. Do you think it, it's essentially like there has to like keep being that thing from Us Weekly, but it's like trans people, they're just like us. Exactly. <laughs> Right. And maybe if Reed was around or if AIDS didn't happen, um, we could think about bigger things. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Um, Chris, are there any other people from queer trans history that you feel do not get enough light shined on them, perhaps because they were so eccentric or perhaps because they were so imperfect? Um, Angela Douglas is another one who um, was this early, like, organizer and um, publisher of, like, this this magazine um, that got a lot of distribution around the U.S., but she was such a weirdo. So not only was she, like, kind of an organizer and um, prolific kind of disseminator of information and about trans people, trans culture, and but also she um, believed in aliens and believed that trans people were a more evolved, like, of our human species and that when the aliens came that they were going to look to us. Um, and take us because we were the more evolved. What, did did Reed Erickson have some kind of thought like that too that we were talking about about trans people being like people that were reaching their full potential as human beings, well, being able to take charge the of their destiny? Well, I think that was like maybe the the what could have been, you know, with the melding of trans politics and some of his like human potential interests. I think. Yeah. And that kind of, yeah, that definitely relates to Angela Douglas, who was such a weirdo. And she would write in, so I think, you know, she did a lot of important work, but then near the end of her life, like, I think she won the lottery (laughs) and was one of those, like, I won the lottery and, like, lost everything, kind of a hard luck story. But she increasingly would, um, these stories would appear in in the magazine. I forget what it's called. It's either Mirage um, but the organization maybe that she founded was trans action organization, Tau. And she, increasingly in the magazine, stories would show up of like lightning, um, downing a power line, um, as retribution for some sort of like police harassment of trans people. <laughs> so you would like make these very, um, kind of off the wall connections between. Oh my God. Unexplained. I love that. <laughs> I just, none of these people are wrong. None of these people are totally wrong. Like, you know, it's absurd to think that humans cannot communicate with animals. Like an animal is not a Lego. Like it's not a, I don't know. It's not like a wire hanger from Target. Like an animal is a living, breathing being. It's not like animals go around not communicating with each other. And they just are like, why are they just like bumping into each other all the time? Because everything, you know, all organic beings communicate in some way or some form. So it's like, you know, animal communication is not that off the wall you know when people interpret things into english and they're like your cat is 
your cat didn't run away. He's working on a project. Like, that is, like, pretty funny. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but, like, aliens, like, it's not that crazy to think that because Earth can sustain life that there wouldn't be another place that could sustain life. Exactly. In the galaxy. Like, that's not so crazy. No. We're mere humans. We have no idea. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.